listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thanks for joining us for Advent 2016, Living Word. Good morning, Real Life. How are we? Excellent. I'm Paul Patterson, the Moscow Student Ministries coach here at Real Life. Do I have any XP3ers or Cruxers out there? Sweet. Winter camp. You should do it. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be sicky narnar. Like, it's going to be great. You should do it. Anyway. Hey, we're on our second week of Advent. As Aaron so eloquently threw me under the bus last week, we decided to do something different this week, looking at the Gospel of John, and apparently it's all my fault, according to him. What we thought about was, let's do something different for Advent. We have the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that all tell the nativity scene story, the the story of Advent, of Jesus' birth and arrival into the world. But what about the Gospel of John? Like one-fourth of the gospel seems to skip it. And what we wanted to do was show you that John actually doesn't do that. John instead is going to take a huge step back and ask the question, what does it mean that this child in a manger has shown up? And he's going to look at the breadth of human history on the global scale, behind the scenes, what is going on? So last week we looked at how uh, Jesus is the light that comes into the world and the darkness, does not over, does, the darkness does not overcome it. Because the light arrives, we can have hope. We can know what the story is about and how it's going to end. We can have hope in that because Jesus shows up and arrives on the scene. We can know what the word of God is because he is the living word. We know what scripture means now. We know what it means to walk this out. We know what it looks like now. We know how the story ends. We can have hope. This week, we're going to look at something else. What can we have hope in? We can have hope in the fact that we can have peace. That no matter what we're facing, no matter what our story is, no matter what it was, no matter what it's going to be presently or what's going to happen in the next chapter, we can have peace. And that's what this week of Advent is all about. So we're going to jump into the Gospel of John. John is unique on several fronts. Uh, If you look at the the general flow of John, John is going to be really, really slow and long and drawn out. He's not like Mark or Luke that is going to give you a bunch of historical events. He's not going to give you a timeline necessarily. What John is going to do is give you long discourses. He's going to talk about signs and hours. He's going to have the I am statements. He's going to have these different rich, deep metaphors that he is stringing together throughout his gospel. However, the first two chapters of John are different. They're very quick and concise. In the first two chapters, we see a seven-day week that ends with what we're talking about next week at, at the wedding feast, where we see the first sign of Jesus. The first two chapters for John are the introduction. For John, this is the advent. For John, this is the arrival of the hope and the glory that is Jesus, of grace and truth, he will say. This is advent for John. In the middle of this story, though, we're introduced to the person of John the Baptist. And I can promise you, I'm most likely going to confuse John the Baptist and John the Apostle. John the Apostle wrote the Gospel of John. John the Baptist is a guy that's in the Gospel of John, all right? I'm going to probably confuse those two quite a bit. However, we have this this story of John the Baptist that is recorded immediately after his initial prologue. 
about, about uh, in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and that light was in the world. And then there's this introduction of John, John the Baptist. So let's go ahead and jump into this. John 1, verses 19 through 28. This is the testimony of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. Really, this is really important what he says. He's confessing this twice. I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. This is another unique thing about John, the gospel. Uh, the first three synoptic gospels, John the Baptist is portrayed as this Elijah figure. He dresses like Elijah. He has his Elijah costume. He has his Elijah diet. He, he does Elijah things. He talks like Elijah. He goes to Elijah places. Like he is Elijah. We're not talking about reincarnation. We're talking about, yeah, he's the Elijah person. But in the gospel of John, he's not. And why, why is that? And I pose that question. I'm not going to answer it because we don't have time. Uh, footnotes podcast. Go check it out. He says, I am not. All right. If you are not Elijah, then they would ask the next question. Are you the prophet? The prophet refers to this figure at the end of Deuteronomy where God promises that he will send a prophet like Moses. And for the Jews, they were looking for these personas, these figures to show up on the world scene, Elijah and the prophet, and yes, the Messiah. They're looking for these figures to show up. And with what John is doing and what John is saying, seems like this is what, maybe what John is trying to do. And John says, nope, that's, that's not me. That's not me at all. Uh, and he answered, no. They said to him, who are you? If you're none of those three, who are you then? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Now, we've talked about this verse a lot, so we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about it. But to, uh, suffice it to say, John is saying, my job is to prepare the arrival of the Lord. My job is to clear the way and get everything prepared. That way, when he shows up, he can get to work and he can accomplish and establish his kingdom. That is John the Baptist's job. And so they say this, uh, as the prophet Isaiah said. So they say, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? Apparently, there's a connection. There's some type of logical connection between the three people they ask him, are you these three? And when he says no, they ask, then why are you baptizing? Like, if you're not these three people, why are you baptizing? Uh, generally speaking, one of the reasons they're asking this is because John the Baptist is he's throwing the whole mikvah system up in arms. Anyone can come to John the Baptist and, and experience the, the baptism of repentance. Anyone can do that. They don't have to pay a fine. They don't have to pay a fee. They don't have to go through. They, they can come and be baptized. Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered, and notice he actually doesn't answer his, their question. Uh, he says, you got the wrong question. I baptize with water. He just says, yep, I baptize. You asked the wrong question. There's no such thing as dumb questions, but there are such things as wrong questions. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. There, there is someone that is already present and you're not even aware of it. 
in context, we, could know, we know that this is the Lord. This is the light that comes into the world. This is the word made flesh. He is present, and they're not even aware of it. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, which, by the way, is John the Apostle kind of trying to give you mixed signals saying, yes, by the way, John the Baptist is Elijah, because Bethany beyond the Jordan is a place that Elijah was at, where John was baptizing. Now, after this, John is going, John the Apostle is going to give us, uh, he's going to talk about the witness that John had of Jesus. And we, we read about how Jesus is approaching John, and John says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then he's going to give a witness. He's going to give a testimony about what he saw. And that testimony is going to be centered around the baptism of Jesus. Now, John the Apostle, uh, he assumes that his audience is already familiar with the story of Jesus' baptism because he doesn't go in depth. He doesn't describe it. He just kind of alludes to it and moves on. But it's important enough for John the Apostle to include it in his introduction to his gospel. And the question is why? Why is Jesus' baptism, why does Jesus' baptism make it into the gospel of John when so much of the other synoptic gospels don't make it in there? Why does he include it here in his introduction? We're going to give you the answer. We're going to work from the answer back to the question. You see, Jesus' baptism was unique. It was, it's, it, like we often think about Jesus' baptism in covenantal terms, and that is fine. That is good. We should do it that way. Jesus did something. We do something. We are united because we both do it. That's good. But there's something unique about Jesus' baptism. I don't know about you, but when, when I was baptized, I did not have the Spirit come down from heaven and flutter over me. I did not have a voice from heaven speak forth, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. If you've had that happen, you're the Messiah. Uh, like, you should be up here. Like, that, yeah, that, like, that is, Jesus' baptism is unique. Something different is happening at Jesus' baptism. And what we're going to do is we're going to, what we're going to find that John is doing is John is going to play with this Genesis creation language throughout his entire gospel. We saw it last week. In the beginning was the word. From the very beginning of Gospel of John, John is going to be speaking Genesis. In the beginning was the word. And then he's going to talk about light and darkness and how the darkness can't overcome the light. He's going to talk about things. uh, Listen to our footnotes podcast because we talk more about this. But the baptism becomes a central piece to this for for John's introduction of the person of Jesus. We see a pattern that runs throughout scripture that John the Apostle is going to lean on, that he's going to reference here in his Advent story. So let's jump into Genesis and let's look at the creation event and let's find a pattern that's there. We see that there's this chaos of the world. The world is tohu vavohu, utter and complete chaos. It's a word that is used later by the prophets to describe the desolation and destruction that occurs when an army comes in and wipes the city clean. That is what's left over. Tohu vavohu. We see that there's this water that covers the world. The word is tahom. The Greek Septuagint will later translate it abyss. It is the abyss. We see that the ruach of God flutters over the water. It is hovering over it. And it's 
at this moment that God speaks into this chaotic world and he starts separating and putting things in its proper place. He creates spaces. He separates the firmaments. He separates the water from the land. Like we see him doing this. And then we see that there's this expected order. He fills this order with life and potential and it is very good. Tov me'od. But what we find one chapter later is that there's this testing of this order, of this shalom and peace that God has made. And as we know, the testing ends in tragedy. Now, I want to go back and talk about the word water because we have one word for it. Well, we have more, but when we think of water, we often think of something like this. It's nice and clean and refreshing. You know, it's a hot shower, a cool, a, a cool creek. It's something like that. You know, we think of the beach. We think of nice and pretty, and it's the source of life. It's what waters our crops. It enables them to grow. That is not what this word water here of of uh, Tehom means. It's something more like this. This deep, chaotic mess. Uh, we don't have time to talk about the cosmology of the ancient world and the way they viewed the way the world was structured and ordered. But te, what you need to know is that Tehom was this deep, bottomless water world that was on the outskirts and it had to be held back from the world in order for creation to exist. You can find this type of cosmology within the Egyptian myths, within the Babylonian myths, within the Mesopotamian myths. You find it all over the place. And it's this type of language that the scripture is going to use when it talks about creation. And it's going to talk about it in Psalms and Isaiah as well. How God is the one that holds back the waters. He is the one that overcomes the abyss. The Septuagint word abyss literally means uh, bottomless. It, it is a sea without depth. It is a word that Jesus will use uh, when he is talking with legion. And he casts the demons into the pigs. Why does he do that? Because the demons ask him not to cast them into the abyss. Revelation will use the same word to talk about the bottomless pit, the abyss that the beast comes from. The abyss, the Tehom, is this chaotic world full of destruction. It is a place that you never want to go to. This is the world that Genesis presents to us that God comes into hovers over and speaks into and starts separating and creating life. So hold on to that. What we find then after the creation event is we find a repeating of this pattern. We come to the story of the flood. We see that the world is in chaos. Both humanity itself is in chaos. Like we just, it's not good. Humanity is destroying itself. But then what we see is that God allows the home to collapse in on itself that the separation of the land from the water and the separation of the firmaments literally collide together. There is no longer separation. The world enters back into chaos, both as humanity and as the creative order itself. It collapses in on itself. It is into this chaos that we read about how God covers the world with the, the, the waters. We read about how the Ruach of God, the Spirit of God, blows over the waters and causes the waters to yet again recede. And we see God once again separating. He's repeating day two and day three. We see God speaks to Noah. And then there's this expected order yet again. The, the story has been redeemed, that everything will be good now. God has acted. We're good. But yet, yet again, we see that there's this testing. Immediately after 
the flood, we read about another garden. This time it's a vineyard that Noah has planted. He gets drunk, he's in his tent, and we read about this awkward situation where his son beholds his nakedness. It does not literally mean that his son saw him naked. I would tell you what it means, but my two boys are sitting over here and I don't wanna to have to answer questions later. Um, it's, it's not good. Noah awakens and what we find is that Noah curses. We see yet another curse. It, the story ends in tragedy yet again. We jump ahead and we read about another redemption event. When we talk about the Exodus, we see that the Israelites are in chaos. Like they, they are both in servitude, they are, they are suffering, but also later after God has redeemed them, after God has finally enacted his last plague and Pharaoh has finally relented, they are finally free. They approach the Red Sea and then we read that the Pharaoh's army is behind them and the people go into chaos. What happens? Uh, there's the water of the Red Sea. We read about the Ruach of God blowing over the water and it causes the waters to separate again, to recede. We see that God speaks to Moses, not just at the event, but after the event on Mount Sinai, when he gives them the, when he gives them the word, the Torah, the teachings. And we see this, we, talk, we call it a marriage ceremony. God gives them a ketuvah, this marriage covenant. And we expect that the story is good now. Israel has been redeemed. Slavery has been vanquished. They are now to go into the promised land and everything is going to be good. But yet we see there's a testing. As Moses descends from the mountain with a ketuvah, we find that the people are worshiping a golden calf that they have constructed, claiming that this is the God that redeemed them from Egypt. And it's not just this testing. We read of more testings how they go into the wilderness after this and they face three tests and they fail every one. Eventually, the story ends in tragedy where they are not allowed to go into the promised land. And so instead, they have to wander through the desert for 40 years. And eventually, though, eventually, though, the 40 years comes to an end and we read about how they're about to enter into the promised land. So we read about the Jordan. Next slide. How the land of Canaan is now in chaos. And this is a... Uh, this is hinted at from as early as Genesis, that the land of Canaan is slowly becoming more and more chaotic. We read about a body of water that separates Israel from entering into the promised land, the Jordan. We read about how the Ruach of God blows over the water and causes the water to cease. We read about how God speaks to Joshua. We read about how now there's this expected order. Like finally, the story is good. They are finally in the promised land. Finally, they have arrived. Finally, things will be good. Yet again, there's this testing that ends in tragedy. Whether it's Achan or whether it's the countless generations after this that frequently forget who their God is and what it means to be part of his story. And over and over, there's this testing and unfortunately a failure. Which, by the way, you can track from, from, the Jordan, uh, from Genesis where it goes from one testing to multiple testings to more testings to even more testings. And God frequently, over and over again, is patient and merciful and graceful and long-suffering. Then we come to the story of Jesus' baptism. The world is in chaos. John describes it, he talks about the darkness and how the light comes into the darkness. The world is in chaos. And you, you can look at the people of Israel and how uh, the oppression they are feeling, how they want a hero. Uh, you could just talk about the world at large, the, the forces of darkness and evil that exist. 
We see Jesus come to the Jordan River. We should be thinking of the crossing of the Jordan. We see it when he is baptized, when he plunges into the waters, the Tahom, when he plunges into the waters and comes out. We see the Ruach of God descending from heaven as a dove and hovering over Jesus. If you're paying attention, the only other time that we see the Ruach of God hovering over anything is back in Genesis 1. What's happening at Jesus' baptism is a recreation event. It is a new creation that is being birthed in our midst. This is why this marks the beginning of Jesus' official vocational ministry. This is why it marks the beginning of all of that. We see God speaks from heaven when he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. We read about this expected order that because Jesus has arrived finally, things are gonna be different. We have hope that we can have peace finally. But as we know from the other stories, there's gonna be a testing. And what we find immediately after the baptism of Jesus and the other gospels is that the spirit compels Jesus, pushes Jesus out into the wilderness. You should be thinking of people of Israel wandering in the, in the wilderness. And we see Jesus face three tests, three temptations. You should be thinking of the three temptations, the three tests Israel faced in the wilderness. Or you could be thinking about the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life that we see Eve wrestling with in Genesis 3. Direct connections to those two stories. In fact, Jesus quotes from the latter, the, the first of those two stories. But in this time, however, this time, this time there's victory. This time he is not overcome. This time the story ends the way it's always meant to end. There is victory. Things will be different now. Finally, finally, we don't just have some wishful hope that things might be better, some ignorant, optimistic worldview that, yeah, eventually things will all work out. No, we know that peace will be restored and shalom will come back to this world because Jesus has arrived and he is winning. He always wins. That that is our hope that we can finally have peace in this world. It enables us to face whatever chapters that our story might have. Doesn't matter how dark and bleak it might be. We can face it with peace because we know Jesus will win. We know how the story finally ends. Like that, that is good news. Like finally, finally, the crap that's in our world, we know will be dealt with. The suffering and the evil and the sin that is present in the world will be tackled. This is why John will say in this next passage, just in passing, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. It will never be removed again. He, Jesus has officially, finally brought God back into the world and he's not leaving anytime soon. And he's not giving up. John will say later that from the very beginning, God has been at work, that he has been active in this world. Paul will say in Acts 17, when he's on, on Mars Hill, that from the beginning, God has been positioning people, their times and their places and their boundaries, that they might seek him because God is at work in the world. We, if last week we learned about the light shining in the darkness, if that gives us hope that, that, there, that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and it's not an oncoming train, like we have hope that this will end, the hope is that we can have 
peace finally, that things will be restored. Sometimes, though, it takes work. What it requires is that we go back into the to home, in the ugly places of our life, in the ugly places of the world. It is easy for us to talk about, in general terms, sin and brokenness. It is easy for me to admit that I'm not perfect, for me to admit that, yeah, I have issues, for me to admit that, yeah, I ha- I'm, you know, I've, I've sinned. It's different, though, for me to talk about the specifics, the ugly details. That is different and honestly scares me because that, that is the chaotic world that I don't want to remember. That is the waters that I'm trying to keep at bay. We will not go there. And at baptism, Jesus invites us into that, that we would die with him and trust that we will live again with him, that that's not the end of the story, that peace and order and shalom can be brought even now. It may, but it doesn't, it doesn't happen quickly. And I think Christianity has too often portrayed Jesus as a quick fix to our, to our problems. Like, just pray to God real quick, throw a Hail Mary out there, and he'll, he'll wipe it clean. And honestly, that's what we want, isn't it? Like, we want God just to deal with our problems and make them go away. And he says, sure, come with me, let's go into it. I'll meet you there. Now, there's... I'm going to get a little philosophical with you. There's this guy by the name of Joseph Campbell, and he wrote a book called A Hero with a Thousand Faces. What Joseph Campbell did is he wanted to look from an anthropological and sociological perspective, he wanted to look at all the stories of cultures. And so he just looked at all the stories, and he was asking, is there a theme? Is there a pattern? Like, what are all these stories trying to tell? And he comes up with what he calls uh, the hero's journey. And you could Google this, and you could see a circle. oversimplified version of this, of this story is that there is a hero. He doesn't know he's a hero. He may not be a hero at the beginning. He exists or she exists or they exist in a world of normality, of comfort and where everything is as it should be. However, something arrives that threatens that and they have a choice that they have to make. He'll call it a threshold they have to cross. Will they exit comfort and normality to enter into the chaos to do something about it? And it's a struggle. Eventually they do. And they enter into this world of chaos where they have to overcome things. And there's these different tests and trials that they face. And eventually it all leads up to a moment where he, that he calls death. They face death. And it could be literal, it could be metaphorical, it could be anything. But after death, they come out and he calls it resurrection. And eventually victory is won and restoration and normality, comfort, peace is brought back into creation. Now this story, you can, plot, you can take this, this graph and plot almost every movie and every book that you like. There's some, there's some varieties, and by the way, there's just some really weird stories that are like, where did that come from? The vast majority of stories follow this, this plot line. It could be Finding Nemo, where they exist in the reef and it's nice and comfortable. And what happens? You have, uh, what do they call it? The deep thing? The cliff? The, the drop off. And they go into that and now like, they have that. Remember, remember how Nemo, uh, he goes back into, at the end of the movie, he goes back into the net with all the fish to save him. I'm sorry, I'm a dad with kids six and under. Um, he goes back into the net to help save them. 
And he does, but what happens? Nemo is dead, lying on the, the bottom of the seafloor. But then there's this resurrection. By the way, Joseph Campbell will also talk about a, a re reconciliation between the son and the father that exists in these stories. Uh, you could see it in the Matrix. Like you could, you could almost play Matrix and Finding Nemo side by side and see similarities. By the way, it clicked with me this morning that the Matrix came out in 1999. You guys are old. <laughs> Just saying. But you see the same thing. I think this is why so often Christians are so quick to point out the Messiah figures within movies, because this is humanity's story. We see it in everything. This is what we want. We know the world is in chaos. We know that there's pain. We know that there's suffering. We know that there is sin. And we desperately need a hero to show up on the scene and to do something about it and to restore us once again back to the peace that we so desperately long for in this world. Like, I mean, like, it's everywhere. I'm not sure if it's in Napoleon Dynamite, but <laughs> it's everywhere. Uh, really, like, one of my best examples is The Dark Knight. Like, OMG, holy schnot, yes. That's exactly what's going on there. This is humanity's story, and it's not just humanity's story. This is God's story. We recognize that God has been at work. We, it resonates deep within us that he is at work. Now, it's one thing to talk about movies and books. It's another thing to talk about our life, though. I, I want to give an example of one way this looks like in life, and I asked for permission uh, ahead of time for this. Uh, one of our church attendants posted this on Facebook. She said, today, three years ago, I was arrested for possession on meth, and my son was taken away from me and placed in foster care with some amazing people. By the way, if you're still wrestling with foster care, after 10 months of heartbreak, no job, no car, no phone, no place to stay or to stay clean, and most of all, no child to take care of for a new mother, lost and alone, God got a hold of me. And even though I wasn't clean all the time, I was in his hands the whole time. Today, three years ago, I was told I would never see my son again. I was high and strung out on meth. Today, I'm two and a half years clean. I have a real job, my own place, a phone, a car, and most of all, my son. This wasn't because I'm super awesome. It's because God takes ashes and turns them into beauty because I can't do this without him or alone. I'm so thankful today for life and love and freedom. Thank you for sharing your story. And I am proud. I'm proud that my son can be with her in children's ministry and learn from her. I am proud that he is part of her story now. But hear me, peace didn't come today. It came back at that 10-month mark when God got a hold of her, when she started doing the work and started fighting. Because I guarantee you, somewhere in her, she believed that peace was possible, that her story wasn't done, that there was hope. And it didn't matter what she was going to face. It didn't matter that she didn't have a job or a place to stay. Or it didn't matter that she didn't have her son. Peace was possible. And she held on to that. What this looks like 
is when a single mom feels like she's so alone trying to raise her own child and then she comes to a church and realizes that she has a whole family here who's got her back. What this looks like is the person who is facing cancer and they're not sure if they're gonna be able to beat it, but they know what lies beyond this life. That peace is still possible and will always win. What this looks like is a, is a teenager who's been cutting themselves because secretly they've been at pain and they feel shameful for it, but they have no one to talk to. And finally, finally, they take a risk and they share it with someone. And instead of shame, they find love and acceptance, that their life can change, that in the midst of their pain, they can find peace. What this looks like is when a husband and a wife who have been slowly growing distant from each other slowly forgetting who they are. Eventually their, their marriage collapses and chaos reigns in. But it's at that moment that God meets them. In over weeks and months, their marriage is not just restored, it's healed and it's like it's a new birth. It is different now. It is a child who has felt estranged from their parents for so long and finally, daddy is daddy again and he could find rest and security in his arms. It is the wealthy person who thinks they have it all together, but really it's a facade because they have to prove that they're better than everyone else. It is a tireless and relentless pursuit of the next thing. And finally, God, through his mercy, allows to home to reign back in, and they find God there. This is what peace looks like. It is not a quick fix. It is not God getting rid of our problems. It's God meeting us in our problems. We like to talk about, we like to wrestle with what we call theodicy. It means the problem of evil. Why is there so much pain and suffering in the world if God is loving and all-powerful? And that's a legitimate question that we should wrestle with. The Bible is God's answer to that. You know how God answers it? He doesn't give you a nice, systematic, theological, clean answer. What he tells you is, I'm at work and I'm doing something about it. And then he invites you to join him in it. That is where we find peace. That the story will end good. Day will come. The storm will end. Doesn't matter what we're going through right now, we can have peace. Doesn't matter about our finances. Doesn't matter about our social situation or our family situation or our job. Doesn't matter what our, our family members are doing or going. We know, we know we can have peace in the midst of this chaos because that's where God is. We're gonna work towards communion now. So if you are uh, serving communion, we'd ask that you go ahead and head back. We have an open table here at Real Life. What that means is that anyone who wants to celebrate the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection, we welcome you to take, place, to take that with us. You don't have to, uh, but if you want to remember his lordship and, and the fact that we have a savior of this world, we invite you to do it with us. Hold the elements until the end because we as one family want to take it together. We also want to wrestle with some implications. Implication number one, if Jesus came as the light to help reveal God's true intent to us, what we learned is that God is working to restore order, shalom, peace to his world. This is what God is up to. It doesn't matter whether it's the global headlines and the chaos that's all around us, God's at work. He's at work. It doesn't matter if you just lost your job, God's at work. He's working. He's not done yet. He is not done yet. 
He is, he is going to hold back the water set to home. He is going to go into that mess and that chaos and do something about it. And he is not going to cease until it's all as it should be. Second implication. Chaos cannot be dealt with unless we are willing to not only bring it into the light, it's easy for us to acknowledge our problem. In fact, sometimes we're, we're even willing to admit the problem itself, and then we expect that is all we have to do. We have to plunge back into it ourselves. In counseling or psychology or those lucky f- few have been through the Genesis process, we talk about re-entering the wound, going back into the wound. We have to. It is when we accept God's invitation to meet him in our chaos that he can start restoring peace. It is when we are willing to finally go back into the home of our life, the chaos and the pain and the suffering and yes, the evil, when we are willing to do that, that God will finally, well, he's been speaking the whole time, it's when, that's when we finally hear him speak. Third implication. The invitation is to come into the water and to get into the chaos. You can stand on the bank of the Jordan River. You can stand there as Jesus is baptized, or you can go be baptized with him. And you, can, you yourself can enter into death, into the chaos and the tahome of the world, and enter, come back the other side alive. You could do that, or you can miss out. Or you can live in your comfort and your normalcy, your fake facade, that's redundant, of what you think is life and peace and order. And really, it's just a desperate attempt to maintain control. That is where God is at work, and that's where he can be found. If you want to experience true peace, it's probably going to be found in the midst of your chaos when the storm is circling around you, but you are with your savior and you know he's got this story. Our last implication. We can either stand on the bank and make excuses, we can stand on the bank and be afraid, or we can stand on the bank and be angry and blame him and ask and why, why? And hear me, you could do all three of those and still stand on the bank. Or you could do all three of those and still get in the water. It might be you just putting your toe in or wading in, or you might go all out and do the cannonball, baby. Whatever you do, whatever you do, you can join God in his great restoration project, one mess at a time. This is what God invites us to, not just to have our own mess and chaos and pains and hurts and sin dealt with, but he invites us to help him do that with the world. Paul will say in Corinthians, the God of all comfort who comforts you so that way you can comfort others. He blesses us so we can bless others. He saves us so we can save others. He redeems us so we can redeem others. He grants us peace in the midst of a chaotic world so we can go to those around us who are in chaos and offer them shalom, peace. And every week we come to a table where we're reminded what this ultimately looks like. We're reminded that we have a God who doesn't just send a postcard when things are bad or text us when he's thinking about us, letting you know he's praying for us. 
but a God who's willing to not just get into the mess, but he's willing to suffer and to die himself, that the world might be saved, that you might be saved. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, saying, take and eat. Whenever we do this, remember him. Let's remember. Then he took the cup, saying, drink from all of you. This is the blood of my covenant. And when we drink this, when we drink this, we remember the covenant. We are in partnership with him. Let's remember. Father, I want to thank you for your goodness, for the good story that you are writing. And many of us are at different moments in our life. Help us to trust in you, to know that even in the darkest of moments, we can have peace. To know that in the darkest of moments, your light shines the brightest. That we can be in the middle of a battle, but you are just over the next hill. Victory is coming and it's already here. That though we may face death itself, we will always come out on life because of you. Every time. Help us be the type of people that live this way in this world of chaos. That we are at peace. That we invite people into peace. That we go into their own chaos. That we go into the, to, the to home of the world. And we bring order. That you speak through us. That we bring light into that situation. We pray these things in your name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, connect with us on Facebook and Twitter and visit our website, liferotp.com. Also, if you'd like to dive deeper into this week's conversation, make sure to check out the accompanying Footnotes podcast available in this feed.